Cool. So I'm here with Michael Thomas and Edward Perez of Terraza Big Band. And, you know, it's great to have you guys on. I know you guys just put out this release uh, earlier this year. Um, and, you know, let's let's get right into it. So my question here for you guys, which I'm sure you might get often from students when you do master classes and all, is let's talk about co-leading a big band. <laughs> How mm-hmm. does that work? How did you guys decide to do that? Um I guess the easiest way is maybe like, how did you guys meet? Um, well, yeah, Edward, why don't, why don't you start? Okay, sure. We, we first met through a common friend, Jason Palmer. Okay. Uh, Mike had been playing in Jason's band and I was getting ready to do a recording with Jason. And uh, that's how we were first introduced. And uh, soon after that, we started playing together a lot in different projects. And uh, at one point we became uh, roommates and 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 at that time we were both getting interested in writing for big band and uh that's that's kind of how we decided to put to put the group together and in terms of co-leading uh, i mean i'd really be curious to hear uh what mike has to say about this but but you know since it started as a as a project that we both wanted to write for and we were both we both had this interest in in composing and we were both uh roommates and friends we as we were you know writing kind of the first round of tunes for the group we would constantly uh show each other what we were working on and and you know get inspiration and ideas uh each from the other person and uh for me that was a big help to you know at the beginning of this to go into it uh not alone yeah i mean i would i would agree with that and um i would say also in the beginning like you know i'm talking the very first gig we um we were co-leading sort of out of necessity because we both wanted to play our big band music but neither of us had enough to do a whole gig entirely of our own music and we knew each other and we liked playing with a lot of the same musicians so it kind of seemed natural that we could put something put something out there together and then it turned out that it was working really well and that, you know, our writing styles kind of balanced each other and it it just kind of evolved naturally from that first time we played together with the band. Right. And I would also add that it's, uh, I think it's uh, an advantage to have in a band, uh, a, a band leader who's in the rhythm section and a band leader who's who's lead alto. Uh, because as, you know, as we were starting to form the band, you know, as the personnel was starting to gel and things like that, and we had to make those sorts of decisions, we had kind of one perspective from the front of the band and one perspective from the back of the band. And, uh, it, that's been useful in forming the group and also just in rehearsals and stuff like that, that, uh, you know, Mike will have a perspective on which, which person on second tenor blends with the section best and I'll have, you know, I'll have certain opinions about, about drummers or about other, you know, other parts of the rhythm section and, yeah. and, you know, which, which berry player and bass trombone player play the best unisons. <laughs> with the bass. <laughs> uh, right. Cause are you writing for big band? If you don't have a baseline that is doubled by the berry sax. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Now, I guess, well, so, like, obviously, you guys were in this situation where, like, you were friends first, 
Um, and you know, like you guys got along really well and it just kind of, you know, worked out as you guys were talking about. Um, what about, are there moments? And I mean, I'm sure that there have been at some degree where you guys kind of butt heads. Cause I know like, even when it's like, if someone's just leading a band themselves, there's sometimes some, uh, some tension between another band leader that maybe like, they're not used to being a side man or, or they have varying opinions. And, you know, music is obviously like a very opinionated and, and personal thing. So how do you guys deal with that? And, and respect each other's uh, opinions and, and such you know honestly there hasn't been a lot of conflict like that and i think a lot of it's because before we met we you know we grew up listening to a lot of the same music at different times playing with the same musicians before we met each other you know we had we had kind of gone in the in the same direction before we ever connected so then it it made it really easy for us to work together without, you know, having those kind of expected disagreements in terms of, you know, stylistic choices, personnel choices, things like that. Right. And I'll also add that, I mean, I, I think we both know how to be sidemen. <laughs> um, we both work a lot as sidemen in different groups and, yeah. And I mean, and yeah, to, to add to that, this is this is really i think for both of us this is the most significant project either of us has done as a leader and our careers have kind of yeah. been as sidemen before this so we we're like leading while we're also a sideman to the other band leader exactly like when we're in a rehearsal uh if we're rehearsing one of my tunes i'm I'm the band leader. And then if the next tune we're rehearsing is Mike's tune, I flip a switch, <laughs> I flip a switch in my head and I'm a sideman. And, and that's, doesn't seem unnatural to me at, at all. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, you know? Uh, and it's, it's obviously, uh, you know, and then you guys say like, like you're in a spot though, where, you know, whether maybe not in front of the band, but I'm sure, you know, you guys are, are welcome and open to each other's uh, advice and opinions and, and thoughts and whatnot uh, regarding each other's compositions like you'd spoken about. Oh, definitely. Like, especially as we're working on stuff, sometimes right. we'll consult each other. Yeah. Um, and now, so you guys kind of started this, as you mentioned, because you're like, hey, I, I just want to write for big band. Um. <laughs> And what's some of the things that you guys have maybe uh, learned the most from this, from being, you know, maybe it being your first thing that you've like been the, the leaders on or, or co-leaders on or, or writing for big band? Because, you know, as I'm sure you're well aware, much bigger undertaking than, you know, a trio or, or a quartet or something. Um, oh, that's a good question. I guess... Um... Well, for me, one one of the things that's happened is, you know, ev everybody that studies jazz at the university level takes some kind of arranging course, you know, either in their undergrad or master's or both. So at some point, you've written one or two big band charts. And I think in the same way that, you know, the best way to learn to play is to like have real experience on the bandstand. The, be the best way to learn to write is to have a band that you're writing for. And there's, there's certain things that, you know, 
a year, two years, three years into this project, I realized, okay, that was fine when I wrote it because that's what I could do, but now I can do it better. And I've actually like pulled some of my older music from the book or completely rewritten those charts based on just the practical experience of having better learned how to write for a big band and how things are going to be translated into actual music based on what I'm putting on the page. Have you, yeah. um, oh, go ahead, Edward. Well, I, w I would say the same thing that, I mean, that for us, it's been great to have a steady gig and we, we edit our music and having like, having the feedback of how things sound in reality, uh, is, gives you constant information for your future writing and even doing the recording and just sitting through an editing session, sitting through a mixing session, uh, and, you know, seeing what worked the best, what, what worked with more difficulty. Um, it's, you know, it's given us a lot of, a lot of information to use in our, in our future. Right. I think also we're lucky to be doing this in a, in a community of musicians where so many people play in so many big bands and they're really experienced in that setting. And they all, they all mm -hmm. have, you know, different opinions about the music that are all valid. So it's great to be able to hear from different people month to month, like, like, Oh, what if you wrote it this way instead of that? Or what if, what if I didn't play this phrase or what if I played this with this other voice in the band? And I, you know, that's something that if, if we didn't have, a monthly gig where we're kind of workshopping this stuff, you know, I'm, like we're also performing every month, but part of it is the, the rehearsal aspect and bringing new music. It would be really difficult to get the same benefit if we just say, put together a reading session and played a few charts. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you know, have you ever ran, cause this is something I ran into shit, maybe <laughs> two weeks ago where I was working on a chart and you know you're trying to uh, expand it for for a big band piece, or maybe you're you're taking a big band piece and you're trying to bring it down to a to a small group, and you've just run into like it doesn't work, <laughs> you know, like this tune only works for a quintet and it it will not work, you know, it doesn't work the same way for a big band. How do you approach that? Like, do you write with with the mindset of I'm writing for a big band first, or do you have some stuff where we're like, you know, you've written it for for Mike and a, and a trio? And now you're trying to explode it into something else. Like, what do you find is the easiest way for you to get into something? I guess for me, I started out mostly arranging and orchestrating original tunes that I had already written. And to me, that's just, that's like putting together puzzle pieces. Like there's always, there's always a way to make it work. It may take some time and you may have to take a different path than you thought you were going to like it may end up featuring a different soloist or you may have to add a second solo form or something but there's always in my experience a way to arrange and or orchestrate something for big band but what i've been doing more recently is kind of taking like a a blank canvas approach and writing as though i'm writing for the instrument of a big band and just starting from scratch and creating pieces that are original works for big band. And some of that stuff, I'm not sure I could do the opposite with. Like, I'm not sure that some of those tunes would work as 
you know, quartet pieces because there's so many layers and, and the intricacy of the parts is sort of what makes the piece what it is. So I always feel like it's easy to go bigger and sometimes not possible to go smaller, depending on what, what you've chosen. Hmm. What, yeah, what about you, Edwin? I would agree with that, uh, that going bigger is definitely easier. And I've been uh, arranging tunes that I had written for smaller groups and uh, almost always end up writing entire new sections, entire, entire new interludes. Uh, it's, it's a chance to revisit stuff um, and a chance to kind of make an older piece of music of mine to sort of turn it into what it wished it could have been from the beginning. <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's always, there's always a reason why I want to make a big band version of the tune. And that guides me in, in what to do with the arrangement. Hmm. Now, how do you guys, um, you've like, I've, you know, read your bios and whatnot. And like, you guys kind of have different backgrounds, even though, like you said, you've uh just so happened to play with like jason palmer and and various people that you both have played with either at the same time or different times um but like you know edward with your background in in latin jazz and whatnot something that's you know known for being rhythmically complex to say the least and like how do you incorporate that into a big band and not only um give something to the drummer like how do you take that and apply it to the band as a whole and, and to the horns and whatnot? Oh, um, well, I mean, in Latin music, rhythm is played by every instrument. Uh, you know, every instrument has a rhythmic role. Uh, and just about everything that's played has a rhythmic function. And so, you know, it depends on which tradition you're talking about. And there, there are tunes that I've written that, that draw from various traditions, but you know, for example, if you're if you're writing something, you know, like what people classically call Latin jazz, you're writing something in clave, then, you know, all horn parts and and stuff like that are going to are going to be written with the view of how they interact with the clave as well. Um, and and, you know, that's that's that example. But uh, but, you know, I wrote a tune that's played in, in uh, Afro-Peruvian Lando and, and in that style as well, there are certain, you know, traditionally there isn't a big band playing that music, but, but uh, there are certain guitar parts, a certain rhythms that tend to appear in vocal melodies and certain accents that tend to be there. And that's uh, that, that rhythmic language in the instrumental parts, other than the percussion parts, informs the way that i write uh for the for the horns in the big band okay and uh what about you michael like what do you find you know you have a an interesting background coming from from frost and, and then going through nec and 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 juilliard and whatnot what have you picked up on you know like the artist diploma obviously uh a tours a lot so what influence have you found outside of like straight ahead that you've been able to bring into your uh, um, into your writing that's a good question. I mean, I grew up first as like a very serious classical saxophone player. Um, 
and I didn't really get into jazz until around my senior year of high school. Um, so I've kind of always been interested in classical music. And when I, when I started at the University of Miami, studying woodwind doubling kind of became my outlet to continue studying classical music. And I, I got really serious, especially about clarinet. And I was playing a lot of chamber music. I was playing a lot of contemporary music. I was playing modern wind ensemble music. And I feel like, like a lot of that stuff that I played in those settings has influenced some of my ideas about form, some of my ideas about orchestration, things like that, that, you know, a lot of the time, if you, if you look at, uh, like a modern wind ensemble, obviously big band doesn't have, you know, double reeds or French horns, you know, there's, there's things that we don't have, but if you count the usual woodwind doubles, we have most of the instruments that you would see in that setting. So it's, it's easy to take some of that stuff and kind of put a different twist on it. And, you know, instead of having percussionists, we have a rhythm section. So, you know, I've kind of, I, I grew up playing a lot of that stuff and I think it's, it's come through in the way that I orchestrate more than anything else. Now, I think uh, that's something that you guys also share, which I'm sure that you've talked about, you know, like your experience and what we'll just, you know, label classical music, right? Um, like Edward, you, your experience with like the Silk Road Ensemble and, and Yo-Yo Ma, like even though that's really more, I, I guess you could say world music and whatnot and and all, but how has that influenced your guys' writing? Because I feel like stereotypically, the college age jazz musician kind of uh rebels against that but then when you talk to like older musicians and whatnot they're always talking about these great symphonies and what you know everyone loves Ravel's string quartet and f you know and everyone loves like all these big uh tchaikovsky symphonies and, and Mahler and everything so how has seeing those type of a compositions and, and playing those compositions and whatnot influenced and maybe changed the way that you approach composing a jazz composition Hmm. I, it's tough to be specific. Sure. But, sure. Um, um, well, okay. Well, to begin with, sorry, just because you mentioned Silk Road, um, this is maybe off the topic of classical music, but the different sounds and styles that I've encountered in Silk Road have definitely seeped into, uh, my writing for, for Big Ben and have definitely kind of changed my perspective about music in general. Right. Um, but also uh, classical music, uh, you, you know, I, I, I think I can almost safely speak for both of us when I say that, that the fact that we like classical music so much is one of the things that has drawn us to the idea of yeah, a large I, ensemble. I would say that's definitely true. And, and Big Band. Yeah, yeah. And, and Big Band is is, you know, if we're talking about formats that very traditionally exist in jazz, Big Band is the closest thing we've got to the symphony orchestra. And, um, and so, you know, we always want, uh, you know, we love, we love the contrasts that you can find in, in a great classical piece, the, the, you know, vivid textures and colors. And, and we want to bring those elements into our Big Band writing 
and then also leave some space for for spontaneity and for soloists to really uh bring their own sound in, in into the writing now would you guys say that um you know writing for big man has uh like how did you get out of the head of just using or utilizing doubles you know just like so many people <laughs> i guess when they write for big band like they just feel like well big band is you know this like it's five saxes you know four trombones four trumpets how do you guys really expand past that and getting into different timbres like i'm sure it might be a little bit easier for you mike or it might have came a little bit more naturally you know, it's, it's funny with having study doubles at the at the very beginning we actually had a conversation about how from a practical standpoint you know logistics and also just you know some of the people that we wanted to call for the gig we we decided we're like okay there will be no doubles like like okay we'll allow bass clarinet hmm. there will be no other woodwind doubles except you know soprano on the lead alto book and no flugelhorns because you know realistically like like our regular gig is at a bar in queens and we don't want to have to ask people to bring a bunch of stuff out there and you know so on and so forth for not a lot of money um so it, it started out kind of like that and then we started hearing other things but at that point we had sort of developed a community of musicians that was the band and we you know we felt comfortable saying hey you know we we want you guys to bring flugelhorns next time or there's going to be there's going to be clarinet on a couple of tunes for the second tenor book you, you know so it it kind of it kind of started as like let's just keep this simple and see if it works and then when we were hearing more stuff uh, or wanted to try more stuff, it, you know, we were in a position to, to really do that. And I think also with a lot of young composers, they rely too much on some of those possibilities to try to make their music interesting without really learning how to write for the ensemble itself. And I, you know, I've, I've noticed that... Mm with a lot of like a lot of student composers it's like oh well let me put this on woodwinds just because i can do it rather than you know putting putting this on woodwinds orchestrated this way and doubled by this instrument is going to be the best choice for the music so i think i think we learned a lot about how to write effectively for the band itself before we started incorporating all the extra stuff exactly like we we didn't plan it this way but it almost couldn't have been planned better there almost isn't a better way to learn to to write using doubling yeah. than to force yourself to not do it until you have to badly that you need to i, I don't remember <laughs> right. if it was like on the phone or in person but it was just like oh man like i i think i'm gonna have to have like a soprano part in the tenor part do you think that's gonna be okay <laughs> <laughs> no no i i i get that so with this album that you guys just put out back in in may uh one day wonder um how do you guys approach that do you did you go into it with uh with a theme in mind or, or a specific story in mind or how did you go about choosing compositions you know obviously you wanted to do stuff that like equally uh yeah 
um, showed both your writings. But did you, how did you go about deciding what was going to be on it and, and, and how to go around like something like you've already approached this one big project of writing for a big band. Now you want to do a bigger well, project. I with, guess with at that their point, music, you know, when we went in the studio, we had been playing together for about two and a half years and there were give or take, there were probably about 20 charts in the book, maybe, maybe a few more than that. Um, so, I mean, really we had enough music to record two albums. Uh, and we chose, we chose the stuff that, well, one of the, one of the most important things to us was what can we choose that's going to let us feature everybody in the band at least once on the record? Because we have, I mean, obviously they're great ensemble players, but they're also all outstanding soloists. So that was a big factor for us was how to feature everybody and really hear their voices. And then also just what, um, what was going to have a good flow in terms of a set of music and what the band was the most comfortable with. Cause there were a couple things I think from both of us that we wanted to record, but maybe we had played it, you know, once or twice and it, you know, it would have made the, project a little more stressful so you know save it for the next one right now um you know you know you guys are kind of in that stage where like you've both done teaching uh you've done master classes and whatnot um if you're going to a school and you're talking to like that college age kid who you're talking about might be doing like their first or their second or even you know first five big band compositions. What are those things that you're telling them don't do this or they're wanting to run a big band. You're like, Hey, look, I've, I've tried it. Like that's, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to work. That's a good question. Hmm. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, I'm not going to hold you to it, you know, (laughs) just what are some things I studied my first jazz arranging course with Gary Lindsay at the university of Miami. And he's, he's probably one of the best teachers that I've ever had. And his class was so informative and so organized. And I definitely wouldn't have the skills that I need to write a big band chart if I hadn't taken that class. But it was at the same time, very rule oriented. Like this is the way you do this thing or that thing or whatever. And his writing isn't even that way. And I think at the time I was, I was too young to realize that like when you teach a two semester course like that, you have to do it that way. But I kind of got stuck in those rules for a long time. And it wasn't until I had written, like you say, five or six big band charts where I started to realize like, Hey, it's okay to do some other stuff. If that's really what you're hearing or really the sound you want, as long as you have the, the technical skills to back it up. So I guess like if I, if I had to advise a, like a young student who was interested in writing, it would be similar to what, you know, what people teach about improvising, which is basically like, you know, learn all the theory, learn a bunch of solos, learn a bunch of tunes, and then forget about all of it when you play. But if you haven't, done that kind of detailed study, you're not really going to have anything of your own to offer. 
No, I mean, I, what about you, Ed? What do you think? Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know. The, the question kind of threw me for a loop the way it was phrased. It's sort of a list of don'ts. <laughs> yeah, for, like things that like you've done where you're like, hey, this didn't work out that well. And then, you know, when you're teaching, you're going to advise a student and be like, hey, look, I learned this is not the best I, way to approach this. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I could make a laundry list of little things like, uh, like how certain angular lines that are extremely hard to pull off on a trumpet are more dangerous if you ask more than one person to do it at the same time. Um, just, you know, little, little things like that, uh, places where you need to watch out where you expose people's intonation and you need to watch out for writing in certain limits of the register of certain instruments or be careful how you do it. But, um, but I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, those are sorts of things that you get into if you're just looking at the nitty gritty details of like a passage of music with a student. But if it's um, more general advice, I, I would be thinking less in terms of a list of things not to do and more in terms of aspects of the music to try to pay attention to things like, Things like trying to avoid overwriting, things like trying to plan ahead, uh, sort of the drama, the flow of the drama in in a piece of music before you before you actually get into you know writing the parts so that they serve a purpose. I think also to take that um, question in a slightly uh, things, different direction, more things like that. I would I would tell students or you know anyone that's interested to think about how much rehearsal time is realistic and try to create a situation for themselves where nobody in the band is going to feel like rehearsing is either a drag or not necessary at all. And we've been, we've been really lucky to be able to build that into our residency where we just, we have an open rehearsal every month and we can, review some of the harder stuff people that are maybe subbing with the band can ask to go over a couple of spots we can play something new that we're going to play on the gig that night but we've only in just like we've been we've been playing over four years now and we've had two actual rehearsals one was the day before we did the record and the other one was the day before the record release and I'm sure that that's also like kind of an unrealistic expectation to aspire to because we're lucky with the situation we have, but with freelance musicians being as busy as they are, nobody wants to rehearse for three hours for a two hour gig with music that a lot of it may not even need rehearsal. And I think a lot of band leaders tend to get paranoid or they, they're not willing to trust the musicians that they're calling to do their homework. So, you know, that's something that I would, I would be mindful of. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, damn, I would agree. I think about that with whatever group, you know, I'm putting together, like, uh, you know, time is precious. Yeah, and a lot <laughs> and of the time... Be, Big question you know, there are whether a few, or not how much time you got to rehearse for a book, you know? 
that are just yeah. exceptionally hard for everybody in the band. And we won't play those unless in the open rehearsal we have time to only work on that for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. Right. Um, and, and I guess, you know, another question I have for you guys is, I think um, musicians that are not, that would not label themselves as composers, even though we all compose to some degree, especially in the jazz idiom, um, often don't compose that often because they're, they're waiting for like that one idea, you know, or the one line that they're like really set on and they're like really motivated to go write it. So how do you guys approach writing? Are you from that mindset of like you write a little bit every day and then yeah, some of it you'll never use, some of it you might use later? Or how do you get that stuff going when you don't have just some idea that's, you know, you can't get out of your head? Hmm. I recently I've been lucky enough to have a number of commissions but that's also meant that I've had deadlines and I haven't had the luxury of waiting <laughs> for that, for that spark. Right. Deadlines <laughs> they, they can, they can. But, uh, I, I mean, personally, for example, if I have a commission, I try to think about who I'm writing for and aspects of their <coughs> musicianship that I like. Uh, what, and then what, what kind of story I would like to tell, uh, with, with their voice. Um, but I, I do, I do try to think of what, what kind of story I'm trying to tell or what kind of picture I'm trying to paint. And, um, and in terms of, for me, in terms of, you know, those sort of associations out, outside of the music, for me, even a little bit can go a long way. Uh, because, you know, trying, even if it's a small idea, trying to paint a very clear picture of it can be a full-blown big band piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I get that. I get that. It's definitely... I would agree, though, that like in some of the biggest motivators I've ever had have been deadlines, whether it's been. Yeah, I think another thing for me not, is the more I've written, the know, more I've realized um, they certainly get you to just start doing things. Committing to an idea um, is one of the most important parts because you can always edit later. And I think I think early on I was getting caught up in like. Like trying to figure out the perfect way to mm -hmm. write you know, a melody for the saxophone section or something like that. And I would spend hours and hours and hours doing it instead of just write the first thing that comes to mind. And then, you know, an hour later or a day later or whatever, come back, edit the phrase when you're not, you know, in your own head about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now here's, here's something I want to do to kind of wrap this up. Uh, I'm from very much the mindset that sadly, the majority of people don't come to see us because they like our music or they might not know our music they come to see us because they like us, you know, they're invested in, in you as an individual. Um, so I kind of want to ask you guys some things that are maybe a little bit removed um, from music. I, I really like the big book. band. 
Um, what do you guys like to do yeah. when you're not doing music? Oh, something <laughs> I want to learn how to cook. Um, you like you like to cook? What's like your it, favorite thing to cook or something that you want to learn I've, how to cook? I've kind of always wanted to try cooking Indian food, but it it's always been a little bit daunting because there's so many obscure ingredients that you know if if you're not set up to do that uh you know you're going to go spend $80 at the market to make right, right. a dish that you could get for $12 at the restaurant <laughs> yeah but you know i i love cooking and i love indian food but you know that's something i've never right. attempted because <laughs> of all the spices and everything What about you, Edward? What do you, I know, um, like, it's a weird question to be like, wow, do I do anything else besides music? But, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, no, that always is, <laughs> that always is my first reaction. <laughs> right, but you, you know, when you, you need to escape from it. But, you know, you got to do something else to, I don't know, yeah, refresh yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah, I, um, outside of music, I mean, I hate to be unoriginal, but cooking is actually one of the things <laughs> that I most like as well. And eating, too. Uh, and then, when I get a chance, which is rare, but when I get a chance, I love uh, salsa dancing. And uh, I also, I mean, just in my day to get away from music a little bit to a little bit of exercise, um, I, you know, used to really enjoy before I ran out of episodes I used to really enjoy what I called the Game of Thrones exercise plan. <laughs> I had this little elliptical machine at home, and I'd just be on it for the duration of one episode. <laughs> and that was that was a great way to just kind of get away from everything for for a little while in the middle of the day, and then and then go back to it. Right, and it keeps you from binge watching because you won't be on that elliptical machine for hours on end. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Helps you pace yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what about this? What was the last book you guys re mm. read? Assuming that, you know, we still read. Yeah. But I tend to find okay. musicians <laughs> might read more than your average person. Oh, come on. Don't fail me now, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm in the middle. Right now, I'm in the middle of uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle. I've, I, have, I think it's Walker. I'll have to look up. I'll have to look this up quick. Okay. Uh, which is oh yeah there there we go michelle alexander it's a heavy book it's it's nonfiction, uh and I, but it's i don't know it's probably probably safe to say one of those books that every american should read what about you mike um i am trying to remember it's it's been too long <laughs> <laughs> and probably probably a sign that it's time to time to do that again. <laughs> um, um, well, okay. What about this? What, what was the last show you uh, you binge watched? Uh, oh, probably Mind Hunter. Okay, yo, I've heard that show's killing. I've never seen it myself though. It's yeah, it's pretty amazing actually. I'll have to add that to the list. You know, when I have some some time, man. It, Cause that's like one of those, uh, like, like, uh, criminal, criminal thrillers, right? Yeah. It's like based on a true story about, um, the two guys who started the behavioral analysis unit at the FBI and like 
interviewing serial killers that were already in prison to try to like predict behavior patterns in other cases. But it's yeah, it was it was intense. Mm, wow. All right. Well, you know, man, I, I think we can, uh, you know, we'll call it there. Thank you so much for, for coming on today. Uh, everyone listening, you know, definitely go check out Mindhunter uh, in the Jim Crow book. Uh, but also make sure that you get yourself over to the Spotify, Apple Music, uh, Amazon, you know, all things where music are. Check out One Day Wonder. Came back out and was out in May. Uh, if you're on, you know, if you're ever in New York, I'm sure you'll catch these guys playing or, you know, the big band playing and whatnot. Uh, and thanks again, Mike and Edward, for coming on. 